Good morning. There's no place I'd rather be on this side of eternity than right here with all of you. And that says a lot because I've been seeing pictures of people at the lake for the holiday weekend. Can I get an amen? Okay, it's good to be together. I think this is the, the best place to be. And that's the second best, maybe. So, um, you know, one of the reasons I, I start every week with that is I think for too many years we've come to church because we feel like it's a part of our Christian duty. Um, but the truth is, I think being together is something that we should desire. I think being here and, and being able to worship is something we should yearn for. It's one of our greatest blessings, the time to come together and be with one another, to pray, to open our Bibles and study. This is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us, and it is so wonderful to get to be together. You know, one of the challenges that's come as we have grown is recognizing when someone is slipping through the cracks. If y'all are like me, you kind of know who sits in your area, and if someone doesn't show up for a week or maybe two weeks, what's the first thing you assume? Well, I bet they went to early service, or I, I bet they went to late service. And we kind of got ourselves in a situation where if we aren't careful, it takes us a long time to reach out and, and check on someone. And if you put yourself in the elder's perspective, you could see how that'd be a real challenge. We have 12 elders, and there's some 700-plus of y'all that they're trying to keep tabs on. And so I know while we would all like to say uh, we were best friends with each and every one of, uh, each and every one of us, that that's just not physically possible, and it's certainly not possible for the leadership. They do care about you, though, and they don't want to see you slipping through the cracks. Why am I bringing all of this up? Because I'm about to ask you to do something that may grate against your nerves just a little bit. But every morning at announcement time, we ask you to do something. We say, hey, would you take one of those cards in the back of the pew in front of you and fill it out? Or if you have the app, would you go ahead and check in? And the truth is, as I look at the data, it shows about 60% of you aren't here every Sunday morning. <laughs> That means we're, we're missing a lot of you, and if we started calling, I think we'd find that a lot of those who aren't checking in really are here, and so I, I'd like to ask you to do this. Could you get back in the habit of filling out cards and checking in? This is not for us to rank your Christian commitment based on attendance. It's just to help us notice if someone's missing so we can be sure that we reconnect with them. Um, those of you who are here, by letting us know, you help our data be good. So as we go back and, and look, we can see if someone's missing. So here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to sit around every Sunday and look through the list and say, well, so-and-so wasn't here, and then and have some sort of a ranking system. We're not doing that. We have bigger fish to fry than to monitor the attendance every week. What we are going to do is a couple of times a year, we're going to sit down and look and say, hey, are there those of our members who have missed large blocks that we haven't seen in a long time? Because that's a sign someone's slipping through the cracks, and we want to be sure that that doesn't happen. So if you could, um, fill out your attendance cards. Let us know you're here. As odd as it may sound, that's one of the ways that you can love your brothers and sisters, is by letting us know so we can, we can keep tabs on everyone and hold one another accountable. Better yet, if you see one of your friends that's missing, reach out and check on them, because um, that's going to go a, a lot longer way than, than anything. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. I'd like for you to open your Bibles and turn there. Some of you may be familiar with the Indiana Jones series. Um, the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade centers around his search for the Holy Grail. Um, 
Of course, Indiana Jones is an archaeologist, and they really, Hollywood really romanticizes what it looks like to be an archaeologist. I would imagine in, in real life it's much more boring than all of the things that Indiana Jones gets to do. Um, but he goes on these crazy escapades, searching after all of these, uh, these uh, mythical things that they found as part of their, um, their digs. And, and in the last crusade, the thing that he is pursuing is the Holy Grail. And it's this, this uh, goblet that was associated with, with Jesus. And they believe that it would give the gift of eternal life if they could just drink from it. Now, of course... We know that this is all uh, uh, fictional, and it, it's much uh, blown out of proportion by Hollywood. The truth is, the, the gift of eternal life is, is clearly spoken about in Scripture. So we don't have to jump through all these hoops like Indiana Jones did, but it sure does make a good movie. And so we, we watch him pursuing this and, and risking it all and going through these crazy traps and, and, and jumping through all this stuff to finally, uh, to finally identify the Holy Grail. Eternal life, eternal life is still the holy grail, even today. And we see the world jumping through all sorts of hoops in search of it and and trying to get it. And here we are in Luke chapter 10, in week 2 of a four-week series, where Jesus just very clearly lays it out. Hey, here it is. Here it is for the taking. And and let me show you. Now, Jesus isn't giving a, a recipe here. But he is giving us this the central push throughout all of Scripture. He is laying out the foundational principles that, if followed, are most definitely going to lead to eternal life. So I think we should zero in on it closely. Let's read our key text, Luke 10, 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, <clears throat> Excuse me. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, as I've tried to study this passage, I've been met with a little bit of difficulty because the truth is no one really seems to want to talk about the first little block that we're spending four weeks on. You see, it's in the context of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we talked about several weeks back. And so as I'm reading and studying, I'm finding that as we approach this passage, almost everyone wants to kind of jump over this familiar teaching of loving God, and they want to drop straight to loving your neighbor as yourself and unwrapping the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so they kind of glance over this first little section that we're digging in with, and, and they do it in two ways. And in some, uh, some of the commentaries, they just make a quick reference, and they say, yeah, um, You're supposed to love God with everything. Now, moving on to loving your neighbors yourself. And then some of them maybe give it a a paragraph or two, and they say, well, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we love God, and we use our emotions and our belief and our logic and our physical bodies. And so the sum is love God with everything, and then they move on to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so I got a little frustrated in, in my studies at first because it seemed like yet once again I had picked something to preach on, and I wasn't going to have anything to share with y'all. But, but then as I study and as I dig, I find that there's so much there. There's so much there in these four elements for us to unwrap and unfold. In fact, one of the things that I notice is that the actual text, 
approaches these four elements a little differently than most of us probably do when we're talking with our normal language. So we look at this, this text and we say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love God. You need to love God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. That's how we would talk about it. But note carefully what the lawyer says. He says, love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Did you hear the difference there? In one of them, I kind of grouped them all together, and I just said, you need to love God, and then I said, one, two, three, four. But in the other one, I gave emphasis to each individual element, and that's what the lawyer does with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, or with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. As you saw last week, the first element, heart, that's a pretty all-encompassing element that's laid out. I said last week that the heart was the center point of you. It's the source from which everything else flows. And I, I still believe that to be true. So this week, as we step into this next element that was also emphasized um, very heavily, we're going to start talking about the soul. And we have to ask ourselves, how does something like the soul fit with something like the heart? In other words, how do they interact and relate to one another? I think that's a question that we have to answer to understand the impact being made in this fourfold statement. Allow me to paint a common scene from our home. This probably happens all too often. I get home after a long day and I'm sitting in the chair and from the back room you hear a little bit of a rumble emerging. The kids are bickering. All right, The parents know what I'm talking about. Well here in a second, it never fails, I hear a pitter-patter of little feet. And Blair has arrived to deliver all of the sins of her brother. She tells me all the things that he's doing. Braxton is doing this, and Braxton is doing that. And so what does this wise dad do? I say, well, you go tell Braxton. Dad said to stop. Here goes the pitter-patter of little feet's back. And I hear, you need to stop. And he says, well, you can't tell me what to do. Well, daddy said, you stop. And so then it becomes this whole thing, and eventually I have to get up. So what has happened there? Something that we're actually pretty familiar with. The... The source of the information used a, a means to transfer that information, okay? And I've put Blair in kind of an unfair position of being the deliverer of, of this news. I'm the source. Blair is the means. We find that Braxton doesn't always respond quite like he should, okay? That's something that we're familiar with in real life, the source being separate from the means. Here's a different illustration, maybe a little bit of a better one. Y'all may have seen the news articles arising um, surrounding artificial intelligence. It's kind of everywhere right now, and people are kind of worried about it. We're not sure what to do with it. <clears throat> it's because computers are being programmed in a way that's a little different than maybe we're used to. They're being programmed in a way where they seem to be able to kind of process and assimilate information that they've gathered into the code that's there in the computer. But here's the bottom line. At the end of the day, computers only do what we tell them to do. Um, computers are the, the means with which the source, which would be the programmer, um, um, the means with which their intent um, goes out into the world. So maybe you want to do a math problem, and so you sit down at your computer, your calculator, and you input the problem, and it does some of the work for you, and then the output is handed over to you. Or maybe you're into playing video games, and so what do you do? You sit down, and you have some sort of input, and you see a movement within the game, or even with an internet search. I mean, all of this is the very consumer level of, of uh, source, 
uh, having a desire and using this computer as the means to carry out what they want to achieve. I think we see the same thing happening here in the text. Love is the result. It's the output. The heart is the source. The heart is like the the programmer that that decides and tells what's going to happen. But there in the middle, there in the middle are the means. The way that that message is delivered, the way that the the love is, 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 um, is sought after, and the soul, strength, and mind that we read about in this text, I believe that's what those are. Let me see if I can make my case for that a little bit. If we uh, looked at the grammar, we see Luke 10, 27, and we often set it side by side with Deuteronomy 6, 5. This is the main Old Testament teaching that the lawyer was drawing on in Deuteronomy 6, 5. And we see some similarities and some differences in the two texts. So both of them give emphasis to these different elements. But in Luke, we see he emphasizes heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. If we go back to Deuteronomy, we see that one is missing. It says, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. So if you're like me, you tend to look at this and you kind of weigh the two columns and you say, okay, the lawyer obviously added an additional one there at the end. He added with all of your mind. So there's something there that he was trying to emphasize. But we believe that they share kind of that same same core up at the top. Well, as I look a little closer, I start to wonder if this is so. You see, last week we notice that the word for heart is often translated mind. So I want to propose a a thought or an idea. If we just reordered Deuteronomy 6.5 and kind of laid it out a little differently, we would see with all of your soul, with all of your might, and with all of your heart or mind would actually mesh very well with the last three elements that the lawyer laid out. Now, This starts making me see things a little different um, as it's laid out that way. I start understanding that maybe the lawyer was viewing things a little differently than we first give him credit for. Maybe it wasn't that he was adding something at the end of the passage. Maybe it's that the lawyer was starting with the big picture. The lawyer was saying, okay, I see things things clearly here. You have the heart. You have the source. And then you have the tools that are used to put that into action. With all of your heart, and then he draws back to the Old Testament, with your soul and your strength and your mind. It's really interesting that in this Luke account, there actually are some different Greek words used for with all. So the Greek word for with all your heart is actually more often translated from in the New Testament. The Greek word with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind is more commonly translated with. So as I look at this and I start wrestling with it, I think this is the only account where they're laid out this way, this one in Luke. I think something special was happening here. I think the lawyer saw something and was communicating something to Jesus that that maybe wasn't happening in the other gospel accounts. I think the lawyer was saying, look, there's a difference in the source and the means. It's from your heart and it's with your soul and with your strength. And with your mind. And if that's the case, if that's true, then as we approach the soul, we have to think about it a little bit differently. The soul is the first tool we have at our disposal to live out a love for God that originates at our core, in our heart. 
So let's do some work here and define the soul. What is the soul? You know, we talk about the soul in a lot of different ways. One of my favorite songs to sing is, It Is Well With My Soul. It's by Horatio Spafford. The David A. and David H. Sprott taught a Bible class where we got some history of some of the songs that we sing a while back. And this particular one was pretty stunning. He uh, had just experienced the death of his four-year-old son. He was on the, or actually in the middle of financial ruin because of things that were happening in the economy. He sent his wife and his four daughters overseas on a boat, and the ship wrecked, and his four daughters drowned, and his wife was the only one who survived. And it was in the wake of all of that tragedy that he penned the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Many of you know the words well. That draws us to this element of, of soul. There's, there's something inside of Horatio that, that despite the fact that everything around him seemed broken, it was okay with. The idea of soul carries with us this, this idea of something intangible. Um, you know, we often, I, I grew up watching Casper the Friendly Ghost. Now, I don't, I don't believe in ghosts at all, but the idea of ghost um, does kind of capture the way that we think about something like a soul or a, or a spirit. We represent these images of these beings, these disembodied spirits that still are the person without the body. You see, that's Part of, our, uh, part of our ways of thinking about what the soul is. Does that mesh with the biblical elements that we see of soul? I, in a lot of ways it does, in some ways it doesn't. What is the soul? We see, first of all, that the soul is a, a very physical thing. The soul represents life itself. Chris mentioned in this element of the soul about a year ago. He said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. Um, Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And it's that element of life that is so often attached with this idea of a soul in Scripture. And so we see that often when the word for life is used, it's actually the same word for soul. Uh, they're, they're used interchangeably. Um, so the idea of, of soul represents physical life itself. In Acts 27, 37, we see an even different use. It's just talking about this, this historical count of people that were on this boat. And it says, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. Persons is translated souls. Uh, people. So we see the idea of physical life. We see the idea of, of personhood. Jesus spoke of it similarly in Matthew 6, 25. He said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or your soul. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So you see there, Jesus has done something interesting. He's, he showed us the fact that life or, or the idea of soul is very much connected with these tangible things like food or drink. But he also introduces the idea that there's something more. He says, isn't it greater than just what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink? In other words, it's not less than. Your life, your soul, who you are is very much attached to, to these material things. But there's something more. There's something more that we intuitively know is there than just the physical sense. There's a transcendent element to our souls. In Acts 2.41 we see, read, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
So the idea of souls is now starting to be associated with salvation and eternal life. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So you see, Jesus understands that the soul is something that transcends past this physical life. It can be separated from our physical bodies. It's transcendent. It's more than just a body that breathes and bleeds. In 1 Peter 1, 8-9, we read, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is how we stand at the casket of a loved one, with the understanding that even though we look at the empty shell of their body, they still exist. This is how we know that. What is the soul? I believe our soul is the life force that animates our bodies now and for all eternity. This is the element given by God that is going to persist. And what we do with it in the here and now matters. How do we love God with our soul? I saw a, a, a meme online. It was a picture of a guy, and I think he was holding a crescent wrench, and he said, all tools are hammers except screwdrivers. Those are chisels. <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> That's kind of how I operate. Whatever's closest by is, is the hammer, and then if I need a chisel, it's almost always a, a screwdriver. In fact, I was uh, just yesterday trying to put a door back on a cabinet and I caught myself. I'd already written my illustration into the sermon and I caught myself using a crescent wrench as a hammer. And I thought, ha, huh, uh, I am practicing what I preach. If we're going to view the, the soul as a tool, that means that we have to think about how we're going to use it. And we want to use it properly. How do we love God with all of our soul? In other words, how does our soul serve as a, a conduit for the purposes of the heart? How does it put our central love for God on display to the world? Well, I think we can learn a lot from Luke chapter 12, a parable or teaching of Jesus that helps us connect with this in a really tangible way. I'd like for you to turn over there. You see, he tells a parable about a soul that's pursuing wrong things, and then he lays out the struggles that we have in this regard in his teaching section. And then he gives a really sound piece of advice for how to escape the most common soul trap that pulls our hearts away from God. So I think we need to spend some time there. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 21. We're going to start with this picture of a wrongly focused soul. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Notice him speaking in, in terms of his, um, speaking to his, his soul. He tells his soul, relax, eat. 
So in that we see both the immaterial and the, immaterial, the, immaterial and the material side of things, the, the relaxed side of things and, and the eat side of things. And those are both things that we do with our soul. And the truth is what's painted here, the picture of this man who's, who's stored up all of these things in barns and has made it his, his soul's pursuit to get to a place of, of leisure and relaxing and comfort, that's the normative way that our society says the soul should be used. And God looks at that and he says, that's really foolish. That's really foolish because you have taken this eternal thing and you've focused and and zeroed in on things that aren't lasting. You haven't properly matched your soul with things that it needs. And so he goes on and and he turns to his disciples and he says, y'all seen that a lot. You know what that's like. In fact, he would turn to you at this moment and he would say, in verse 22, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on, for life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as a small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all of the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. I believe the verb from Luke that most clearly communicates how we use our soul is seek. It is what our affections yearn for. It's what we wake up each day and worry and are anxious about. It's what fills the moments when our mind is not engaged with other things. That's That's the way that we're using our soul. That gives us an indication of what our soul or our life is focused on. And Jesus, in the next three verses, uh, really challenges his disciples. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, the element of heart has been brought in yet again. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Hey, you're struggling with all of these physical things, so you want to know the solution? (laughs) If you can't handle it, get rid of it. I mean, it's just as simple as that. In other words, Jesus says you'd go to whatever extreme it takes for you to figure out how to quit worrying about material things. Quit pursuing them. Quit storing them up. Quit thinking that these material things are going to provide you with anything that lasts. Because living your life for those things means that you're pressing your soul into something temporary. 
Now, I think if I was being honest, most of us are in grave danger of misplaced treasuring, of using our eternal soul to pursue temporary things. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This entire teaching section, this entire parable is really about the pursuit of your life. Your treasure is your life's pursuit, the focus of your soul. If you want eternal life, then your entire heart needs to be pressed towards God. This means your affections, your pursuits, the things you breathe for, your soul. Your soul must be pointed towards Him and not the world. So I ask you again, what, what is your treasure? What do you treasure? Paul said it this way in Philippians 1.21. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Paul said, while I have the, the breath of life, as long as I have it, as long as I'm breathing, I am going to pursue God and pursue Christ and pursue His desires. You see, this is about where your desires are focused. This is about where your hope lies. This is about where you get your sense of security and meaning and purpose. That's what he's talking about when he says, with all of your soul. So let's take a step back and, and see what we've looked at. Three things. We've looked at the grammar of the passage and we've determined that the soul is one of three tools used to put our central love of God into action. The heart is the source, the soul is the means. We've determined that biblically our soul is our animating life force. It's that which, which drives us both here and for eternity. And we've seen that Jesus teaches and Paul models that loving God with all of our soul means that we expend our life energy thinking about Him instead of other things. We look to Him for our sense of security and purpose. He is our treasure. And when something other, when some sort of other treasure starts taking our focus away, we need to get rid of it so we can focus on Him. Soul started as a pretty intangible kind of floating concept for me. But as you can see, it lands in a very tangible, physical place. Loving God with all of your soul is about what you wake up and direct your daily choices towards. It's what you live for. Don't let the pursuit of your soul be a sport. Don't let it be a, a hobby. Don't let it be a job or a person, or a house, or a car. Don't let the pursuit of your soul be a bank account or sex. It's easy each day to wake up and to use your life to pursue so many things. And often if you chase those things long enough, you'll catch some of them. But what you will have not caught is eternal life because eternal life isn't found in any of those places. Eternal life is found in God and that is what Jesus is trying to communicate. That's what the lawyer answers and that's what Jesus affirms. According to Jesus, when you seek God first, your other needs seem to get covered. 
Your ultimate drive for immortality is satisfied in a beautiful way. When we love God with all of our heart, He becomes central. And that means that we use our lives, we use our souls to pursue Him. If your soul has been pursuing things other than God, I'm going to guess you feel unsatisfied and empty. And if not, you most certainly will at some point because moths and thieves and rust and decay ruin everything that we can gain for ourselves. You see, the answer is counterintuitive. You don't save yourself by focusing on yourself, but everything can be gained when you only focus on God. Now, I'm not convinced this is possible on our own. It's not our natural state. We are naturally selfish and focused on ourselves, but God has given us three huge tools to help, and the first one is His divinely inspired Word, Scripture. It teaches and equips us with everything that we need. The second thing we see is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is received at baptism, and that's something that helps press our hearts in the direction that it needs to go. And the third thing is a Christian family. We are adopted into the family of Christ at baptism, to the family and the kingdom of God. So what we do here matters. So so if you haven't opened your Bible, that's where the work starts. The message is there, and it tells you what to do. But if you have and you've seen the truth and you believe, the next step is baptism. That's how you get access to the Spirit. That's how you get access to the family. We stand ready this morning to study. We stand ready this morning to baptize. We stand ready to pray for anyone who has needs. The invitation is open. We invite you to come forward if you have a need as we stand and as we sing.